excited that you guys are here. Happy Valentine's Day. We thought about handing out flowers to everyone that walked into the door this morning, and then we realized that as a young church plant, that probably meant we wouldn't have enough money to have a service next Sunday. So we love you all. Just know that. We're for you. Um, We're glad that you're here. Um, As Jason mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, we are in week two of a series through the book of Proverbs that will run us up to Easter Sunday. And so if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last Sunday's message online. Uh, we, we attempted to frame out this series by looking at Proverbs 9, where we see a contrast between Lady Wisdom and her strength and beauty and her invitation to come dine at her table and where that invitation leads, and, and the contrast with Lady Folly and her description and her invitation and where her invitation leads us, and we're meant to wrestle with whether or not we'll choose wisdom over folly. And now, uh, this morning, we begin to engage in various topics throughout the book of Proverbs, but we're doing so under that banner. And so even as you look at the signage on either side of the room, uh, you're meant to see on the, on the other side of that at the peripheral edges a house that's inviting you in um, as we engage these various topics. So uh, you may not be aware of this, but we're doing a psychological study as well to see how many of you sit on this side of the room because you think God will love you more and um, whether you feel awkward when you come and take communion if you're on this side later on in the service. And those are all hard issues that we want to work with you through. So if you need to grab a cup of coffee based on our um, stage design, we can do do that if we need to. Um, As I mentioned last week, if you were here, uh, none of us lives a stationary life. We're, We're all on the move. Even if you feel stuck in life, your life is still a life in motion. The question is not, am I on a path? The question is, the path that I'm on, where is it leading me? Um, You're becoming who you will be this very day, and God knows that, and he cares, which is why he gave us wisdom literature in the Bible, and specifically the book of Proverbs. Ray Ortland Jr., in his commentary, says this. He says, if we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best of intentions. If we have courage but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast stupidity. If we have revival but not wisdom, we will use the power of God to throw the church into reverse gear. We desperately need the wisdom of God, all of us, myself included. And so last week, again, my goal was the same as the author of Proverbs in chapters 1 through 9 to compel us to choose wisdom over folly. And so we did look at this contrasting word picture between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. One of us invites us into true satisfaction and joy. The other invites us to sit at her table, to raise our glass, and to toast our own death. And the reality is, we talked about this as well, we need eyes to see that oftentimes the land of the dead looks like the land of the living and vice versa. Our eyes deceive us. Um, We we looked at a couple of clips from The Corpse Bride last week, strangely, to help paint this picture that oftentimes we see sin in technicolor and we see Christianity in grayscale. We get ourselves mixed up. We deeply need eyes to see. And so the question, as we addressed it last week, is where do these eyes to see come from? The reality is they're not offered to the scoffer, the unteachable, the proud, the easily offended, the impossible to to correct. And I think we need to ask ourselves week in and week out as we continue this series, are we functioning as the scoffer as as we engage in this together? Um, If you come in this morning, and we're going to talk about the tongue this morning, and, and your mind immediately goes to everyone but you. 
and how they poorly use their tongue in God-dishonoring ways, then at that point, I think you need to assess the reality that you now are the scoffer, according to Proverbs 9. That eyes to see are offered to the humble, to the teachable, to those who understand that they haven't arrived, to those who crave the correction, the instruction, the teaching necessary to grow, even when it hurts. And so where does the humility come from? If we need eyes to see, and and that comes from uh, a posture of humility, where does humility come from? Where does teachability come from? We answered that question last week as well. It comes from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight that when we see Jesus like Peter saw Aslan in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he declares, I'm longing to see him. I've got to be close to him. I've got to wrap my arms around his big, bushy mane. I love him. I want to be close. Even if I do feel frightened, Peter says, when it comes to the point, that there's a love, there's a drawing into intimacy, and yet there's a great reverence for the Lion of Judah, the true king. It's from our seeing Jesus for who he really is and savoring him. That's where the eyes to see comes from. That's where wisdom comes from. And so for the next six weeks, we are going to venture into some topical waters. Um, We're going to talk about the tongue. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about emotions. We're going to talk about friendship. And we're going to talk about humility. And, And my hope is that the Spirit of God would give us eyes to see how the gospel informs all of these topics that we're gonna engage. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. We're not gonna camp out there very long. We're gonna look at a number of Proverbs this morning, but this is gonna be our launching pad. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab that Bible and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours as the church's gift to you. Just take it. Happy Valentine's Day. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, help us, give us eyes to see this morning. Pray that you would protect us from taking the position of the scoffer as we engage your word this morning, as we take a look at the power of the tongue. God, this is a deeply convicting message for me personally. I pray that you would help me to preach truth to myself first and foremost, even as we engage this, that you would help the cross to loom larger in my life and in every other life that is represented in this room. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you desperately this morning to draw us into the house of wisdom once again. So would you do that? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you move beyond uh, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, you, you get out of Uh, this introductory stage, these poetic attempts to try to compel us to choose wisdom over folly, and you begin to move into what we traditionally know as the Proverbs themselves. The word proverb comes from the, the Hebrew word mashal, which means to be like. And so the idea is that these Proverbs that you engage in this book of the Bible are meant to teach you what life is really like as God's designed it. I've given this example before, and I can't think of a better one, so I'm going to come back to it. Um, in a biblical interpretation class uh, that I took in seminary, uh, one of my professors laid it out this way to me. He said, um, there are three uses of the law in the scriptures. One is to simply restrain evil. Uh, the world is far less evil than it would be without the law of God. Um, the second is to show us our depravity and our deep need for the gospel. But the third, as Christians, is to help us walk in the way that maximizes our joy. And the way that he laid this out was to say, um, he said, whenever I took my kids to grab ice cream for the first time, we walked into the ice cream shop, 
He said, I, I ordered a cone for each of my kids, and I put it in their hand, uh, but, but before they could even do anything with it, I said, listen, you need to know some things. You need to know that you're meant to lick this. You need to know that you're meant to hold it tightly. You need to know that you're meant not to throw it across the room. I know it's, it's white and round and looks like a baseball sun, but you're not meant to hurl it. If you do that, you're not going to enjoy it the way you're intended to enjoy it. And he said, in doing that, my kids don't even realize that, that I'm putting imperatives in front of them. Commands. Do this. Don't do that. And the purpose of these imperatives, these commands, is to help them maximize the joy of the gift that I'm, I've given them. We've been given, if you're a Christian, the gift of a restored relationship with God, and we now have an opportunity to maximize our joy in the midst of that gift if we'll listen to what God has to say. That God is saying in the Proverbs, live life this way and the joy will be yours and the glory will be mine. So as you approach the rest of the series, keep that in mind. Envision the Proverbs themselves as truth statements meant to increase your joy in God. Every time you choose the house of lady wisdom, you increase your joy and you maximize the glory of God in your life. Another thing to be mindful of as we engage the, the specific Proverbs themselves, a proverb is not an absolute promise, but rather a normative promise. Let me give you a couple of examples. Proverbs chapter 10, verse three says, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Now, is that an absolute promise? Does that mean that across the world, those who are impoverished don't love Jesus? Of course not. We wouldn't go there, nor would we say that when we read Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich, that everyone who works hard in life comes out on the other side with a six-figure salary. It doesn't always work that way. You can't absolutize the Proverbs. They're not meant to be absolutized. But they often do play out the way we, we read because they follow a normative pattern of the way God designed the world to work. And so we should anticipate, we should expect God to move when we align ourselves with what we see in his word. See, here's the deal. If you're looking for clear black and white, um, clear-cut lines in the sand on how to go about living your life, you're going to be super frustrated with this series. You just are. There, there are some Proverbs that offer you that, um, but there are others that don't. There are others that help us see that we desperately need the wisdom of God. We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to walk in the way of wisdom. Let me give you an example. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5 say this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what do you do? Answer a fool according to his folly or don't answer a fool according to his folly. Both are in back-to-back -back verses. You would think if the Bible was trying to prove that it doesn't contradict itself, that there would at least be a great spacing out there between those two, right? But, but the idea is that we're meant to see that when we engage the Proverbs, there's a situational element to it. There's an existential element to it in terms of what, what we bring uh, in terms of our hearts to that particular situation. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we were looking at these two Proverbs, who am I engaging right now? That there are some people, when you engage them in their folly, you begin to look like them. Right? I've seen that on the political debate stage in recent history. All of a sudden, one guy goes after it, and all of a sudden, they all look like each other. Right? But then there's also a sense in which you engage people, and it would be detrimental to let them walk away and think that they've imparted wisdom when they've actually imparted folly. They need to be engaged. And so we have to come empowered by the Spirit of God 
and ask for discernment in those moments to know whether to apply Proverbs 26.4 in this moment or Proverbs 26.5. And so my prayer is that the Spirit of God would work in all of our lives because I can't come at every angle, every possible situation that you could encounter as it pertains to each of these topics. The Holy Spirit is going to have to move if we are going to see um, our, our sanctification play out, our growth as Christians in the gospel. Proverbs 18 is uh, the launching pad for us this morning, verse 21. But as I said before, we're going to go into a number of Proverbs that have to do with the tongue. Um, With each of these, ask God to help you see whose table you're sitting at, going back to last week. Are you sitting at the the table of Lady Wisdom, or are you sitting at the table of of Lady Folly? With that being said, let's begin with Proverbs 18, 21, which says this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The book of Proverbs says more about the tongue, more about words than any other topic, more than sex, more than money, more than family, and so forth and so on. I think the reason for that is found in this particular verse. It says death and life are in the power of the tongue, that the words that come out of our mouths have the ability to breathe life into people or to destroy them. It's really, if you think about it, it, it's really quite amazing that the God who spoke the universe into existence that the God who sustains the universe by the spoken word of his power, that God created you and me in his image. That we're talkers. We can't help ourselves. We were designed that way as image bearers of God. One study shows that the average American speaks 700 times a day. That seems conservative to me. I don't know about you, but uh, just me and my wife probably talk more than that in a given day. And every one of those moments, 700 or more, are opportunities to breathe life into others or to crush them. That simply by speaking, you can breathe life into a faithless soul. That simply by speaking, you can bring hope into a moment of someone's despair. That simply by speaking, you can shine light upon the hearts of others around you. Yet on the flip side, simply by speaking, you can destroy a person's faith. Simply by speaking, you can crush a person's hope. Simply by speaking, you can damage a person's identity. That words have been the cause of suicide. Words have been the cause of wars throughout the course of human history. Words have been the cause of deep emotional and psychological damage to people. Some of you guys had a parent call you stupid once, and you're still working through that. Simply put, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words just might destroy you. That sticks and stones have the ability to injure the body, but words have the ability to injure us in the deepest recesses of our being. Proverbs 12, 18 says it this way, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. That our rash words, our thoughtless words, they emotionally wound. They can cause scars that remain for a long time. That even when we take back what we say, when we pull out the sword, so to speak, the wound is still there and the scar can be long lasting. Our words have the power to destroy community around us. Proverbs 16, 28 says it this way. A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. The, the relational Trinitarian God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's been an intra-Trinitarian love that, that's taken place since before the foundations of the world, a love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one Godhead. And we've been created to image him, and that means that we've been created for relationships. 
Our words have the power to destroy every one of those relationships that we've been gifted. You could do that with one sentence today. You could call up everyone you love and and say one thing that you know would crush them and destroy every relationship in your life. That's a lot of power, is it not? Going back to Proverbs 18, 21, notice the second part of the verse. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. That words are compared to food here, to sustenance. We need them to survive. We need to speak them, and we need to hear them. Imagine a life in which you had to keep everything bottled up inside. No opportunity to communicate with anyone else. I saw the movie The Martian recently with Matt Damon, and uh, I won't give away the movie, but he's essentially stuck on Mars for years. And there are people who watch that movie and their response is, man, I could not imagine living on that diet for several years. That sounds like the worst of it all to me. Or I couldn't imagine, imagine being caught up in that claustrophobic kind of experience that he's in where he has to live in such close quarters over the course of several years. But for me, the most devastating part of of his experience is not being able to communicate with anyone for years, having to at best talk to himself to work through his own emotions, his own uh, wrestling points as he's trying to engage life in this experience. We, We need to express ourselves to other people. God created us to know others and to be known. It's part of being human. And we also need to hear the words of others spoken to us. We need words of encouragement. We need words of hope. We need words of wisdom. That's a part of being human too. That's why the silent treatment is so devastating. We're not created for the silent treatment. We're made to know people and to be known through words. Now, here's where it can get a little disheartening. I'll be honest with you. This was a difficult sermon for me to to prepare Because my tongue, as James says in chapter three of his book of the Bible, is a restless evil full of poison. And so I honestly don't like where we're going for the next few minutes. The reality is if there's no God, there's no such thing as ethics, a standard of right and wrong. Without God, there's only what is, not what ought to be. Without God, words just are what they are. But if there is a God, then there's an ought to with respect to the way that we use our words which is why we have Proverbs like these. Chapter 12, verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. There's an ought to in this proverb, is there not? We ought to be truth tellers, which is not an abomination to the Lord. We ought not to be liars, which is an abomination to the Lord. That lying is repulsive to God, according to this verse. Anyone told a lie in recent history? I know I have. And here's how we try to justify it. We'll, we'll categorize between the bold-faced lie and the little white lie. And, and what we're doing when we do that is, is we're minimizing, we're reducing God's holiness and, and diminishing our sin. But what we don't realize is happening in that moment is we're also reducing the cross of Jesus Christ in our deep need for the blood of Jesus when we do that. Alongside truth-telling, God calls us to an ethic of gentleness with our words. Proverbs 15, 4 says it this way. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 15, 1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That there's an ethic to these verses as well. There's an ought to. We ought to speak to one another with a gentle tongue. That gentleness is a part of the fruit of the spirit, according to Galatians 5. 
And unless we think that gentleness means being a pushover, take a look at this proverb. Chapter 25, verse 15 says, Through patience a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. That a gentle tongue doesn't mean the abandonment of truth. A a gentle tongue has the ability to, to break down, to soften the most resistant of hardened hearts. Gentleness is motivated by a desire to win the person, you might say, rather than the argument. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, a gentle word is bone-breakingly clear, yet in tone, in purpose, in voice, and in motivation, it's kind. Anyone struggle with being harsh in the way you've spoken to someone recently? My wife would be the first to attest for me that the answer to that is yes. There's even a timing element as it pertains to the way we use our words. Proverbs 25, 11 says this, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. That in the original Hebrew, the word apt has to do with timing here. That a word of truth in poor timing will lead to nothing fruitful. Some of us, that, that's, that's the challenge that we, we find ourselves facing as it pertains to the tongue. That it's not just about getting the words out of your mouth. It's about you as the communicator saying in a way that that it will be heard. It will be received by the other person. That you create receptivity in the way that you time what you say. That there's a wisdom and ought to in knowing when to speak and when not to speak. When we think through the when and the how of our words, according to Proverbs 25, 11, it's a beautiful thing. It's exquisite. It's attractive, like apples of gold in settings of silver. Let me ask this, has anyone chosen a poor time to say something recently, even if what you said was true? I have. Along with the timing element, there's a quantitative element as well. Proverbs 10, 19 says this, when words are many, transgressions are not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That here's the truth, we, t- we talked about this uh, last week, I believe. We're all slow, progressive, grueling works of sanctification And what that means is the more we talk, the more likely we are to say sinful things. Proverbs 29, 11 says this, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man gently holds it back. In other words, a wise man has a spirit-empowered filter on his or her mouth. He or she doesn't just say anything and everything that comes to mind. And not only are we talking about the danger of sin as we talk about the excessive nature of our words, The more we open our mouths, the less likely uh, what we say will actually hold weight. That's what Proverbs 17, 27, and 28 is saying. It says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. That if you restrain your words, if you're slow to speak, when you do actually speak, what you say will hold more weight. That even a fool who's slow to speak comes across as wise. It's not until he opens his mouth that folly is exposed. So here would be the next question. Is your word count a little too high these days? Do the words that you want to hold weight fail to do so because they get lost amidst all the others? There's even an ethic in the book of Proverbs and ought to pertaining to how we listen to the words of others. Proverbs comes at it both ways. It's not just about what you say. It's about what you engage in as a hearer. Proverbs 17.4 says this, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. That listening to lies 
Listening to gossip, listening to degradation is a moral issue, according to this verse. That to listen to a poison seeping forth from another person's tongue is to participate in that evil itself. Which is really hard, isn't it? We're drawn to gossip. We're drawn to controversy. That's why Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Our fickle hearts find gossip to be tasty. They find controversy to be tasty. We eat it up. And according to God, it's wicked. To listen to poison is to aid and abet the one spewing it, you might say. Think about that the next time you find yourself in a juicy conversation, that your participation is a sharing in the evil itself. Now, I don't know where you are in your seat right now. As I was working through all of this throughout the course of the week, here's what I wanted to do at this point. I wanted to disappear off the grid relationally, never to speak again, never to be on the listening end of a conversation again, because at least that way I could play it safe. What if I say something sinful? What if I lend my ear to something sinful? All the what ifs start coming into play. The problem with that is that we need words to survive. Again, we need to speak them. We need to hear them. They're like sustenance to us. Going back to Proverbs 18, 21. We need to express ourselves. We need to hear words of hope, words of wisdom, words of encouragement from other people. Again, it's all a part of being human. We have a responsibility to speak in ways that bring honor to God and breathe life into fellow image bearers of God. That there's an ought to there as well. It's not just about sins of commission, committing sins that, that God uh, commands us not to, but it's also about the sin of omission. He commands us to breathe life into one another, and we're called to do that as well. And there's an ethic behind that, which is why we have verses like Proverbs 16, 24, which says this, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. That part of what God is inviting us into is this life-giving mission of speaking the grace of God into each other's lives. That's the beauty of the church. It's the beauty of our mission. You can't do that if you choose to go off the grid relationally. It just doesn't happen that way. We're called to speak the grace of God into one another's lives, and we're also called to speak up on behalf of the marginalized, on behalf of the, the slandered, on behalf of those who are gossiped about. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this, Open your mouth for the mute, for the, the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And listen, th this includes those who have no voice because they don't even know that they're being talked about. When someone, let me ask you this, when someone makes you their soundboard for slander, do you speak up in those moments? Or do you allow the seething poison to continue to seep forth in your presence? God calls us to open our mouth on behalf of those who have no voice, and especially in the South. And listen, I can say this because I grew up in the South, especially in the land where people are nice to your face and talk about you behind your back. We've got to breathe life into those conversations, especially for those who have no voice in the conversation because they're not even invited into it. We've got to do that. So the question becomes, how do we respond in light of all of the ethical implications of, of our words as we engage the book of Proverbs, and here's where I say grace be to God, or thanks be to God, I should say, for Proverbs 16, 23, which says this, a wise man's heart guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. 
Jesus must have read this proverb somewhere along the way or heard it because it sounds an awful lot like what we hear in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says this. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, uh, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Hear me when I say this. This is critical. This is the difference between the gospel and moralism. Word problems are heart problems. It's not ultimately a a war on words, on the tongue, but rather a war for your heart. We don't like that because it means that we have to look in here at the problem rather than looking externally, outside of us, at others, at the culture, at what we grew uh, up in as the blame. And so the question becomes, are, are you willing to declare this with me this morning, that I am the greatest enemy of the life-giving power of the tongue? Can you say that? There's something humble about declaring that. There's something teachable about declaring that that opens the door for, for wisdom to come to bear in our lives. That going back to the fig tree that uh, Jesus describes in Luke chapter 6, I imagine if I had a fig tree in my backyard and all it produced were withered, dried up, inedible figs. All right, imagine my wife says to me, we need to do something about that tree. Number one, we're not getting any good figs out of it. Number two, it's an eyesore in the neighborhood. The neighbors are gonna call the, the covenant people at the top of the list on us because our tree is ugly. So you need to do something about that. And imagine I respond and say, I got this baby. And, and I go to the fresh market and I buy a bunch of ripened figs and I bring them home, and I proceed to go out into the backyard with a staple gun and staple those ripened figs to my rotting tree. What do you think at that point? Problem solved? From a distance, maybe. Right? My, my neighbors will probably, from, from the road, be able to look on our backyard and, and go, wow, they, they finally got that, that tree fixed. It's no longer an eyesore. It's actually doing what it's meant to do. And don't we do that oftentimes as Christians? Man, I'll just repair the externals just well enough that, that those peering in on my life will think all is well and good. The reality is this, going back to the word picture of the tree. Those fresh ripened pig, uh, figs that I've now stapled to the tree are going to rot pretty soon, are they not? because they're not connected to the the nutrients of of the tree itself, the life source at its root. Not only that, the next batch of figs that the tree itself produces are gonna be withered, dried out, and inedible, just like the ones that it's currently producing, because there's been no change at the tree at its root. It it would be disastrous, and, and this is on any given week. We can come back to Luke chapter six over and over again as we explore Uh, every topic in this series, it would be disastrous to leave this place and to go into fig stapling mode as it pertains to your tongue. To just determine, I'm gonna try a little harder this week. I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps this week. I'm going to establish parameters for filters in my life. I'm gonna really watch my words this week. According to Proverbs 16, 23, as well as Jesus's words in Luke 6, It's not about externals, ultimately. It's about the heart beneath the words. That's the issue. 
your heart. When you see the word heart in the Bible, it's referring to what you find hope in. It's referring to what you love most, what you're really living for, what gives you meaning, what gives you security, what gives you identity. All of that stuff, that's what drives the tongue. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, living for myself, and and this is, This is deeply convicting and very helpful to me. Living for myself and the satisfaction of my selfish desires dehumanizes the people in my life. No longer are they people to me. No longer are they objects of my affection and service. No, my loved ones and friends are reduced either to vehicles that help me get what I want or to obstacles in the way of what I want. He goes on to say this. When they deliver what I want, I speak kindly to them. Not actually because I love them, but because I love myself. And the fact that they have satisfied my desires. When they get in the way of what I want, I speak unkindly to them because I love myself. And they have made the mistake of getting in the way of what I crave. If someone were to to take the words that you've spoken over the last week and play them over a loudspeaker, I don't know about you, I'd be devastated. In a moment, I I would certainly disappear off the grid at that point. If that were to happen in your life, Whose kingdom would it be clear that those words were spoken to serve? The kingdom of self? The kingdom of entitlement? Or would it be the kingdom of God? Would it include a heavy verbal transcript of, of criticism, of slander, of condemnation because people are violating the laws of your kingdom? Do you use words as a punishment? as a way of reining people back into loyal service to you and in your kingdom? Or would that loudspeaker be filled with words of love, words of encouragement, words of hope, because your heart is caught up in the desire to make much of Jesus and be about his kingdom? Now, the answer is muddy, is it not? It's both. We, we bounce back and forth between the house of wisdom and the house of folly all the time. Our fickle hearts need a constant, constant dose of the gospel. And so let me give us a dose of the gospel this morning in light of everything that we've talked about. The gospel says this. Jesus is the only one in human history to guard his mouth perfectly, to use his words perfectly. He never once uh, spoke when he should have remained silent, and he never once remained silent when he should have spoken up. I, I don't know, when you look at Jesus and you look at his perfect, righteous life, I don't know what blows your mind the most, This one is what blows my mind the most because I know the restless evil that my tongue is. It it is mind-blowing to me that if the average person speaks 700 times a day, that you multiply that out over the course of roughly three decades of a man's life, and he never once used his tongue in, in a way that would dishonor the Father. That's unbelievable. Never once spoke when he should have stayed silent. Never once stayed silent when he should have spoken up perfectly kept in step with every ought to pertaining to the tongue. Not one untruthful word, not one harsh word, not one word in poor timing, not one word in excess. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He died for all the moments that we spoke when we shouldn't have. He died for all of our gossip. He died for all of our slander. He died for all of our complaining. He died for all of our insults and he died for all of our excess. He died for all the moments that we've spoken when we shouldn't and he died for all the moments that we've remained silent when we should have spoken up. His blood covers every foolish word that you ever have spoken or ever will speak and his blood covers 
Every wise word, every life-breathing word that you failed to speak or ever will fail to speak. When Jesus died, here's the reality. God the Father stopped speaking to him in that moment. He received the worst form of silent treatment imaginable, that which we deserved. And based on our sin, we're the ones who really should have been cut off from the conversation with God forever. That's what our sin declares. But the beauty of the gospel is this. Because Jesus was cut off in your place, you get to hear the most glorious words of all come from the mouth of God declared over you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. To the degree that you believe that, to that degree you don't need to lie anymore. You don't need to lie out of fear that the truth will cause people to think poorly of you because you know, based on the blood of Christ, you are a beloved child of God. To the degree that you believe that you're a beloved child of God, to that degree you don't need to gossip anymore. You don't have to devalue others in, other, in order to find your value because you, you understand that you're deeply valued by way of the blood of Jesus as a beloved child of God. To the degree that you believe that you're a beloved child of God, to that degree, you don't have to speak harshly anymore. You don't need to crush others for failing to make your name great, your kingdom great, because you bend your knee to King Jesus, the one who was cut off so that you could be restored to God. And we could just go on and on and on with every possibility in terms of how we can use our our tongues. Do you see why it's so critical to preach the gospel to yourself and to always be doing that? See, the the goal is not just that we would experience conviction this morning as we sit under the truth of God's word, but, but rather my prayer would be along with that, that Tuesday, when an opportunity presents itself for you to engage in slandering another human being, that in that moment, that you would preach the gospel to yourself. That those lies, that anti-gospel that's rearing its ugly head saying you need to engage in this to find meaning, identity, and worth, that you could destroy that with the truth of God's word, the beauty of the gospel that says I don't need that because I'm a beloved child of God in whom he is well pleased. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. That if this becomes only about Sundays, we've reduced it to less than what it is. The Christian life is about bringing this to bear in those moments where we deeply need the gospel where we deeply need life breathed into us in those moments where death and folly present themselves. That what you believe at any given moment as it pertains to how God feels about you, that's what drives everything you do and say. That what you believe at any, any given moment as it pertains to who holds the keys to the kingdom, you or God, that's what drives everything you do and say. And listen, it's not just about gospeling ourselves, it's about gospeling one another. That's the beauty of community. Again, we've been given this mission of breathing life into one another, of speaking the grace of God into one another's lives, which is why you have Proverbs like this. 12.25 says, anxiety in a, man, in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. That we need one another. We need gospel reminders from one another constantly. Good words that make our hearts glad in God. The tongue is a life-giving gift, but only when it's fueled by the gospel. So in a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We, We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus. The cup representing his shed blood. If you're not a Christian... 
This is where I would implore you to turn to Jesus, to look to his life, death, and resurrection for hope, to hear him declare those words over you for the first time. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And to come join us at the communion table for the first time as a member of the family of God. And if you are a Christian, the message is no different, right? That during this time that you would sit under the, the beauty and the wonder that God, because of who Christ is and what he's done for you, can declare over you, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That there's nothing that you have done that would cause me to love you less and there's nothing that you will do that could cause you to, me to love you more. I love you perfectly based on the person and work of Jesus. That's where our identity rests and we must remind ourselves of that. So let's do that during this time and, and allow our hearts to be awakened and to fuel the very words that we use to breathe life into one another. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.